This is Monday Morning QB, June 6th, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, the January 6th insurrection comes to prime time. The connection between COVID deaths and racist redlining. Plus, how new organizing is breaking the mold for labor unions. And hearing from Buffalo's Poet Laureate. All that, and this morning, we're asking you to help keep WPFW and this program on the air with a contribution by calling 202-588-9739 or visiting WPFWFM.org. 46 years on the air of commercial-free WPFW, thanks to your continued support, listener. No contribution is too large. No contribution is too small. 202-588-9739. Or online, wpfwfm.org. The revolution may not be televised, but it will be broadcast. Stay with us. Coming this Thursday, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Public hearings during primetime view week. The committee promised previously unseen material and a summary of its findings on the effort to overturn the results of the 2022 presidential election and prevent the transfer of power. For a preview of what to expect, Sue Goodwin has this report. As we anticipate what we may learn or not learn this week as the public hearings on what happened on January 6th get started, it's helpful to be reminded of what the U.S. House Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol was charged to do when it began its work almost a year ago. First, the committee does not have the authority to pursue criminal charges, but it can provide the Justice Department with evidence of any wrongdoing it unearths in its investigation, so don't expect the public hearings to resemble a trial. Secondly, don't expect the hearings to be just about what happened on one day. David Daly is a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, and more recently, Unrigged, how Americans are battling to save democracy. And he explains why any telling of January 6th has to be very broad in scope. Yes, that's exactly right. January 6th was not a spontaneous uprising. And certainly what we know is that really the moment that this presidential election ended in November of 2020, all the way through January 6th and even thereafter, former President Trump was engaged in what was really a coordinated, um, perhaps sloppily coordinated, but a serious effort to interfere with the transfer of power and um, perhaps even to interfere with an act of Congress, which, of course, would be a crime. So to tell that whole story from beginning to end, it's been reported that the committee has interviewed more than 1,000 witnesses, obtained more than 135,000 documents, and received hundreds of telephone tips provided through the January 6th tip line. So now it's time to start sharing with the American public how that all adds up. And in doing so, the committee faces a number of challenges that will govern what we see and hear during the public hearings. 
one of which is the need to make us want to watch something that some people have moved on from and others find difficult to follow. I think what happened on January 6th is part of a really complex narrative. Somehow this committee has to figure out how to tell that complex story in a coherent and structured way. How do you tell that story? How do you make it really interesting when in prime time you are up against a lot of other shows and some people might see January 6th as something that happened a season and a half ago in our politics, right? So this committee has generated a lot of information, a lot of documents, a lot of interviews. Now they have to tell a story to the American people that makes sense and spurs them to action. To hold our attention, the hearings are expected to offer a combination of pre-taped interviews, live testimony, and never-before-seen footage. Back in April, Democratic Committee member Congressman Jamie Raskin said the committee will, quote, tell a story that will blow the roof off the House, close quote, and will present evidence that proves there was coordination among then-President Trump and his inner circle and his supporters. But in doing this, the committee has another challenge, which is how to tell this story in a way that doesn't come across as a partisan witch hunt and would tune out much of the country. You know, polls show that, you know, many Republicans uh, don't see the events of January 6th in the same way as Democrats and independents. A big majorities in the party do believe that, you know, something was done uh, in order to affect the numbers on election day, uh, and they mistrust the outcome and believe that what happened on January 6th was simply a protest against against election fraud. Uh, but I think if you can get somebody from Trump world to say, no, this was something different entirely, this was an effort to overturn a free and fair presidential election, but that becomes pretty compelling TV. As for what he hopes to learn from watching the public hearings, David Daly identifies some key unanswered questions to which he hopes to get answers. What we really still need to learn is what was happening in the days ahead of that. What was the intention of that January 6th rally that happened on the mall where Trump then sent everybody down to the Capitol. He was certainly tweeting in the days ahead of time that this was going to be big. How planned was this? What did they have in mind for the vice president? Why was the vice president so determined not to get in that car that the Secret Service was driving? How concerned was Mike Pence about the uh, prospects really of a coup taking place that day. Um, how was this funded? What can we learn from following the money as we did back in the Watergate hearings uh, that uh, so transfixed the nation almost 50 years ago? And what can we learn from the big gap, just like we had an 18 and a half minute gap in Watergate? There is a long gap in Donald Trump's phone records on January 6th. Uh, has this committee been able to gather any additional information about what the former president 
was doing and who he was talking to that afternoon. Can we learn anything about how these insurrectionists understood the maze of of hallways under the Capitol as well as they did that day? Certainly there was talk that some folks have uh, seen them getting tours of the building in the days ahead of time. Uh, what will come out about that? How deep, in essence, did this conspiracy go? Which all goes back again to why these hearings are so important, particularly at this moment in time. Earlier this year, Republican committee member Liz Cheney called the probe, quote, one of the single most important congressional investigations in history, close quote. But will that be enough to spark concrete actions preventing anyone else from subverting the peaceful transfer of power? David Daly says the potential is there. This is all about narrative. This is about reminding people what happened on January 6th, showing them everything that came before, and also explaining how that threat has deepened since. And if these hearings are able to crystallize the threats against our democracy, they will have done a tremendous public service. And this is the kind of shaking that I think the American populace really needs right now, because this is a dangerous, dangerous moment. And I don't think we fully comprehend the magnitude of the threats ahead of us. And so we need to understand, to really take a clear look at what happened that day, and then find a way to come together and solve some of these structural problems before it happens again on January 6, 2025. David Daly is a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy and more recently unrigged how Americans are battling back to save democracy. And once again, this week, the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol will commence its public hearings on Thursday, June 9th at 8 p.m. Additional hearings will be held through June 23rd and all will be televised and streamed online with a final written report coming out before the midterm elections in November. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Average daily COVID-19 cases remained above 100,000 last week, while total hospitalizations numbered in the tens of thousands. Average daily deaths stand at 267 as of this morning, but the impact of the pandemic has never been felt equally along lines of class, gender, and race, and new research can help us better understand this inequality. Reporter Asia Beckham has more. 
redlining policies that restricted blacks from securing mortgages and limited benefits to white home buyers seemingly still have lasting impacts nearly a century later. Recent findings suggest there's a correlation between redlining and the COVID-19 infection and death rates. Infection rates were three times higher in California neighborhoods where redlining mortgage lending policies deny blacks financial support due to race-related restrictions instituted by the Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation during the Great Depression. Previous data shows that those neighborhoods also have worse outcomes for asthma, birth rates, and cancer. The study entitled The Color of the Pandemic is one of the first to assess redlining and COVID-19 data. It was conducted because while COVID disproportionately impacts minority communities, the researchers say the reports don't provide enough historic context. Ernesto Casillas, medical doctor and pulmonary and critical care medicine fellow at the University of San Francisco, who conducted research about the correlation between residential redlining and COVID-19 infection and death rates, says, and I quote, Little is reported about the role of historical institutionalized discrimination on COVID-19. Our study demonstrates that where you live matters, end quote. Ernesto, can you expand on this point? Definitely. So I think uh, very little research focuses on the effects of systemic racism and systemic oppression on health outcomes. Um, uh, a lot of the time, as doctors, we focus on the biological aspects and the health risk factors, um, genetics, on why diseases happen. And very little research time is spent focusing on how uh, structural racism affects all those things as well. And so that's what we were kind of trying to highlight um, there. And so also doing it with the with this study, we also able to demonstrate that um, areas that have been affected by systemic oppression and systemic racism, just by being an area that has that in its history, negatively affects your health. Those research results were shared during the American Thoracic Society International Conference in mid-May. The report examined COVID-19 cases and death rates reported to the California Department of Public Health from January 2020 to August 2021. Then Casillas and colleagues created heat maps to visually indicate areas with higher rates and compared it with an overlapping map of red line areas. The incidence rate for COVID-19 infection was 3.5 times higher compared to areas that were not redlined. The death rate was twice as high. Casillas, what's your final assessment from this report? If you live in those areas, if you grew up in those areas that were affected by redlining, um, then your chances of getting COVID and dying from COVID are much higher. Even after we adjusted for community health indices and community health uh, scores, we were able to see that even despite adjusting for many variables, we found that redlining was an, it seemed to be an independent factor for negative health outcomes. And so um, even when we adjusted for things like um, some of the scores that we used adjusted for employment level, housing density, education level, insurance status, even when we accounted for those things, redlining remained an independent factor in negative health outcomes for COVID. 
Similarly, a study titled COVID-19 Race and Redlining reported that Chicago area communities that were redlined had a sharper increase in mortality driven by blacks. The data showed that blacks in Chicago constituted 35% of deaths from March 2020 to June 2020, meaning the death rates were 1.3 times higher than their share of the population. Reports say that part of the reasoning may be due to greater exposure of COVID-19, as some homes are multi-generational and crowded as a result of discriminatory lending practices that led to older generations not owning their own homes. Black communities across the United States have bore the brunt of the pandemic. An APM Research Lab study concluded that from January 2020 to April 2022, mortality rates for Blacks were more than twice as high compared to other groups particularly 2.6 times higher than whites. The intake of mainly black and brown patients who had COVID sparked Cassia's interest in the research project. The last four months of uh, residency, I spent basically in the ICU taking care of COVID patients right at the beginning of the pandemic. And unfortunately, one of the things that I noticed immediately was the disproportionate impact of COVID on black and brown people, black, black and brown community around the hospital that I was working at. And so that really, as somebody who identifies as uh, Latino, it had a personal impact to me because I was seeing my own community be affected so um, heavily by COVID. And um, unfortunately, I saw a lot of bad um, outcomes from COVID. And so that kind of got me thinking and wondering why specifically black and brown communities were being devastated so much by COVID. And that was kind of what started all this. We were able to develop this project and subsequently find uh, the results that we presented at this conference recently. Casillas attributes the cause to a lack of resources. During the recent American Thoracic Society Conference, Casillas mentioned that redline communities across the U.S. face similar issues related to poor access to healthy food offerings, higher poverty rates, racial segregation, and low-quality housing. He reiterates that the federal government created redlining, and that impacted the disparities proven in his team's study. I think it will come to no surprise if you simply look at uh, the redline maps for the big cities around the country and, you know, go and drive your car around these areas, and you'll just see for yourself that these redline communities were really devastated by these initiatives that the federal government did. Because there was just a, a massive divestment in these communities. And so these communities rely heavily on, on just government programs now to support people who are impoverished and have health issues, substance use disorders, mental health issues are not really well taken care of. There aren't many studies about redlining and COVID-19. Casillas says he hopes policymakers think of ideas and solutions while his team and other researchers gather newly founded data about the correlation between COVID-19 and redlining. It would be interesting to collaborate with other states and potentially you know, bring this up to a, a federal government um, level to kind of recognize that these communities uh, need a different approach when health outbreaks occur because we know that um, they're already vulnerable and really it's something that we created as a society and it's our uh, responsibility to correct this issue that we've um, we created you know a long time ago.
This is Asia Beckham for WPFW Radio. Starbucks workers reached a milestone last week, surpassing union elections at over 100 stores. That Starbucks campaign and similar groundswell organizing at Amazon has broken the mold for typical union fights, suggesting that organizers can take risks and run big campaigns in ways previously deemed unstrategic. This breaking of labor's mold is not new, however. Workers and organizers for decades have challenged limitations on what issues can be negotiated in union contracts, which workers are considered eligible for unionization, and how changes in the economy and the structure of work must be met with innovations in organizing. One such longtime labor challenger is Sarita Gupta, who works as vice president of U.S. programs at the Ford Foundation after previously serving as its director of Future of Work. She is co-author, alongside Erica Smiley, of the book The Future We Need, organizing for a better democracy in the 21st century. In the book, the authors address many of these deep questions that have challenged labor for decades and that inform the current battles at Amazon and Starbucks. One such question is how to address the pernicious effect of union busting. We are seeing the use by employers of union busting law firms and tactics that are meant to really uh, threaten, instill fear um, and intimidate workers. And it really is part of a much longer history in our country, really a, a backlash to much of the progress that was made in the 30s in actually establishing the National Labor Relations Act, the legal framework under which workers can organize and collectively bargain. And really, uh, I would say it's really starting in the 80s that we start to see employers begin to create formal and informal networks through which they begin to advocate for their needs and wants, uh, which is not to have a unionized workforce. And so we see the coming together of uh, an industry, a union busting industry that has been growing, growing in their influence, growing in their resources, growing in their reach into everything from labor management schools around the country, business schools, to um, their partnerships with employers like Starbucks, like Amazon. One of the cool things about your book is that I think it seeks to broaden the definition of democracy to include collective bargaining. And this is important because I think this union busting that that we're just talking about is intended to stymie that economic democracy. And so um, can you just take a couple minutes to describe what do we mean when we say economic democracy and why is it a necessary complement to political democracy? Absolutely. Democracy in itself has to be inclusive of both political and economic democracy. The idea that people can 
collectively join together and be able to negotiate with any entity that has power over their lives, like power in terms of decision making, really impacting uh, issues from in their workplace to the communities they live in and their livelihoods and well-being is really what Smiley and I posit in the book, that we have to expand our thinking of collective bargaining. And the reason this is so important is because um, our daily habits of democracy have actually been eroded in the last three, four decades, you know, because of all the trends of globalization and fissuring of our economy and the attacks as we've seen on our political democracy as of late on voting, uh, voting rights and much more. People have lost the ability to see the opportunity to govern over all aspects of their lives. And so it's really important that not only that we see um, collective bargaining and economic democracy is critical for workers to have a voice and say in their workplaces, but also to be building the muscle and ability to actually demand the same in all the different ways that they interact with the economy as tenants, you know, who are renting apartments or homes or students who hold debt. Um, there are many different examples, um, but we think that is a critical part of how we also preserve and protect and strengthen our democracy. The very idea of majority participation, the idea that people should be able to shape the policies, the practices, the norms that impact their lives, that is fundamentally what democracy is about. It's, it's about electing people who represent our interests, and it's about having a say. Um, and so what we are trying to say in the book is, let's not narrow our definition of democracy. Democracy needs to be about both political voice and economic voice. You mentioned this a little bit, but I think I think a corollary to this expansion of the definition of democracy is, a, is an expansion of the definition of, of worker, or at least an expansion of how the labor movement addresses the whole worker, really, as tenants, as consumers, as you mentioned. Why is it important for working people to confront capital, not just in the workplace, but also uh, in their homes, at, in their roles as consumers, et cetera? Well, because people are struggling. Um, the economic hardships that people are experiencing today are profound, you know, and I think the pandemic actually crystallized this for so many people that, you know, even before the pandemic, there were 64 million people in this country who were making less than, you know, $50,000 a year and somehow are supposed to be figuring out, you know, they're literally living paycheck to paycheck. And, um, making impossible choices between paying for food or housing or medicine or whatever their needs are. You know, Chris, in our book, we, um, we profile different workers and tell stories, not just of them as people who are victims of like all that's not working, but actually as like leaders who are then developing strategies and being transformed by this experience. So I just want to share that, you know, one of the worker leaders that we had the privilege of interviewing was a woman named Dolores Wright. And Dolores, um, we, we interviewed her because she was a leader in the Crown Heights Tenants Union. And she talked about evictions and what was happening, the gentrification in her community and her profound need to come together with others in her housing development to begin to organize for better conditions. But as we interviewed her, we realized that 
she was totally inspired by her experience as a domestic worker. She was a domestic worker leader who led the one who was one of the leaders who led the fight for the first ever domestic workers bill of rights in this country in New York state. That experience of joining together with other domestic workers and establishing a set of standards through policy um, really transformed her notion of like, if I can make change in my workplace, why can't I make it in the other ways that I am impacted, my life is impacted. That transformation is so critical, um, but it also is another lever, right, for working people to make change. And that's really what the promise of this moment is and what we try to lift up in the book. And this goes back to your question of why economic democracy is so important, because people have to feel power, empowered, and feel that they have power to make change in their lives. That's what makes a democracy work. And um, Dolores is a great example of why this is so critical. On her own, she couldn't fight the rent fights and the evictions and things she was seeing happening in her community. But through a process of coming together with others, together they could actually um, make movement. And in this case, they're built, they've built a great tenants union. I'm glad you mentioned this profile of Dolores, because I think one of the cool parts, one of the many cool parts of your book are these profiles of, of workers. And it reminds me of the storytelling that, that I used to do when I was a member of the labor movement and, and the student movement. And I, I think this is important because, you know, as journalists and as writers, often when we analyze problems, we do so from a, a bit of a distance or we use data that sort of abstracts the, the issue that we're discussing. This might be obvious to ask, but why is it important to tell stories of workers' lived experiences when we're talking about the future of labor. Absolutely. Well, it's so critical for exactly the reason you just said, because there's a way in which we abstract the issues. We dehumanize what's going on in, in this um, way that I don't think we mean to, but happens. So again, if we look at the, the conversation about union busting and what does it really feel like to experience retaliation, to experience that kind of fear and intimidation, um, I would point to the story of Lydia Victoria Lydia um, was a long, it was a worker leader in the Smithfield campaign in North Carolina. And she actually, through her profile, talks about what it felt like to have ICE agents come into the plant and, and do an immigration raid. So I think it's important to tell these stories so that we really understand the real risks workers are taking, um, what it means for Amazon workers and Starbucks workers today. I was with a Starbucks worker from Buffalo a few weeks ago who shared that, you know, Howard Schultz showed up and was like ready to, you know, try to negotiate and say, you don't, we don't need a union. It's just me. And what, can you imagine what that must feel like to be a barista and have the CEO walk in and say that to you? So I think really understanding the profound impacts of the the sheer imbalance of power of employers in relationship to workers who are trying to organize. The second reason I think the profiles are really important is to also 
remind us and tell the story that workers are not just victims. They are actually strategists and leaders in their own journey. And that many of the, the all the profiles were of workers who really developed approaches and t- are testing new ways to think about how we build power in the workplace. Um, and I think that's really important that somehow we think some set of experts are going to come in and fix the situation. Um, it's Yes, do we need policymakers to like change laws? And absolutely. But we also need a movement of workers who are going to demand that change. And part of what the profiles help um, illustrate is how workers are doing that. No law has been created without the pressure of movements to make change. And that's really what the book lifts up. And now, we'll continue our coverage for today, the racist murder of 10 black people at a Buffalo grocery store on May 14th has attracted less attention in recent weeks as new mass shootings have dominated news cycles and pundits and politicians scramble to stake their claim in the gun debate. But the white supremacist motivation of the Buffalo massacre and of so many other instances of mass violence should not be forgotten. Nor should we forget or overlook the painstaking work of Buffalo residents seeking to recover from the violence of May 14th. Reporter Asia Beckham has more. At 1 a.m., Buffalo resident Jillian Hainsworth woke up the day after a white supremacist took the lives of 10 people and injured three others at Tufts Grocer. Her pillow was damp with tears as she cried in her sleep. Who knows if Jillian would have been a target during the shooting, as she works just a few steps away from the grocer. Luckily, she was at her best friend's baby shower. The community lost mainly elders and women figures who were vital to the community. Even when you talk to their families and knowing what they were doing at Tops, like um, one of these victims was at Tops getting groceries because she was going to cook dinner, Sunday dinner for like the whole family. Like these were like leaders and, and matriarchs of families. Jillian has a significant role in the community as well. She's the director of leadership development at Open Buffalo, a grassroots organization that trains community activists on how to identify problems and create solutions in public policy and public systems. But she's also Buffalo's first poet laureate, after advocating that city council create the role for nearly two years. In 2021, Julian took on the title, but more importantly, the responsibility. The 29-year-old speaks and offers poems at civic events and community gatherings. And I quote, I might be doing a peace vigil. I might be doing a funeral. Wherever my community calls me to show up, I show up, she says, end quote. Since her 2017 debut, while performing at University of Buffalo's Black History Month program, she's performed at least 300 times, whether in her community or across the U.S. This community trusts me 
to be a voice for us to articulate how we feel, to articulate our demands, to articulate our needs. Um, and I think through both my poetry and organizing, I've been able to to represent my community as a voice for us. The slogan that best represents her work is, and I quote, the revolution will rhyme. Spoken word comes from the African tradition of storytelling. It is how we make sure that our history is accurate because we know that schools are not teaching our history accurately. The most recent poem that Julian wrote about the mass shooting is titled Unanswered Questions. Here's a short snippet that will air in its completion at the end of this clip. That we will break free from the perpetual state of survival, hair of the red and blue lights, the grocery store, the church, the school, the playground, when does it end? When do we stop fighting a battle that wasn't ours to begin with? We know we have power, but we long to feel the freedom of no longer carrying the weight of hate, a hate that never belongs to us, a hate that should never be welcomed or fed, but even that hate gets to cease while we travel through a food desert with our hands on ten and two, and though our hearts are tired, our feet will not grow weary. We will organize and strategize, fighting for change until our very last breath. Until our very last breath, we will fight, says Jillian. Jillian says the role of a poet in the community is essential because it helps the community to keep pressing forward. I've come to recognize that as an artist, I am a healer. During the Community Day of Healing on May 21st, one week after the shooting, performers in the community came together through the arts. Jillian recited Ashe. So many years of knowing that we're here, loud and proud, after running into walls and deciding to tear them down, for the people in the culture sprouting up from out the ground, building community for us all, heart strong, minds sound, and minds clear. Because there's only room for liberation in here. Standing firm because God has not given us a spirit of fear and it's confirmed. Royalty can find gold in their tears. And regardless of the circumstance, a builder is going to build. So we salute those who laid the foundation, creating a new home. Because they knew when two or three are gathered, no one ends up alone. And that unity really matters because the fight still goes on. And as long as we stay vigilant, the fight may last long, but the fight won't last always. We've seen signs of better days. Ancestors' pride beaming so bright, we feel the warmth fall on our face and it travels south to our hearts, making our love grow deep. Rooted in the passion of Bobby, expanding back as far as Eve. That's what this was founded on, something too black and too strong, something too loud and too proud, something that will always live on, people who will march into the fire but will still walk in peace, who will put the pressure on until oppression finds release, people who will stand so united that there isn't even room to fall, and who understands that one can't find justice if it's not available to all, so in confidence and triumph we celebrate surviving the storm. Make it a commitment towards ensuring we protect what was formed with our faith knowing nothing of ceilings or graves and with true freedom leading the way. So with that, repeat after me, Ashe. To the visionaries, Ashe. To the ones who led the way, Ashe. And to the ones who will sustain, Ashe. As the community heals, the advocates will continue to fight. She says what her city needs right now is an honest conversation about systemic racism, the history of segregation, redlining, and highway construction that caused the black neighborhood to be vulnerable. Buffalo is the fifth most segregated city in the country. That's a sign of weakness. The lack of economic 
economic growth on the east side of Buffalo is a sign of weakness. Redlining just became illegal here, but it's still something that a lot of people experience when it comes to trying to purchase homes. We need to address that. So, so there are a lot of underlying issues when it comes to the development of, of black communities in Buffalo that we really need to get serious about. Buffalo is ranked as the fifth most segregated city in America after Gary, Indiana, Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland. The specific area where the mass shooting occurred is also 78% black. Per the Census Bureau 2020 American Community Survey, in 2005, Byron Brown became Buffalo's first black mayor. Brown was recently sworn into a fifth term as the 62nd mayor this past January. We know that having a, a predominantly black um, leadership in Buffalo, it means that our leaders are also surviving a lot of the same systems. Um, they're grieving too. They they know the people that we lost on May 14th too, personally. Um, but that doesn't absolve them from the responsibility of making sure that this city is designed for everybody to thrive. Kathy Hochul has some responsibility. Um, because racism is not specific to certain parts of, of New York State. It runs through the state. I've talked to leaders from all across the state of New York in the past couple of weeks. And so many people can identify specific situations in their own communities that are symptoms of these systemic issues. So, Kathy Hoko, what are you going to do from the state's perspective? What are you going to do financially to make sure that resources are coming into our communities? We know that legislative priorities are backed only by um, budgeting. So stop telling us that you are sorry and that you have condolences and that you're hurt and put some money behind it. And Joe Biden, what is Joe Biden going to do? Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both came to Buffalo since May 14th. Um, Kamala Harris attended one of the funerals. Um, we can hug each other. We can give each other support and well wishes. We can give each other sympathy and empathy. What are you going to do? What what executive actions are you going to take? Again, not only to pass legislation to protect people, gun legislation, um, but also anti-hate legislation. This time, those unanswered questions are not words that Jillian is pinning for a poem. It's the questions that she asked as an activist. In early May, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump also called for an anti-black hate crime law. Reports say that Biden visited Buffalo, New York. The community echoed that same call to action. In May 2021, Buffalo signed into law a bill aimed at combating anti-Asian hate crimes, particularly after Asian Americans were beaten slashed fat on and even set on fire and killed after being blamed and scapegoated for the COVID-19 outbreak. Last week, K-pop supergroup BTS made headlines for visiting the White House to commend the administration's efforts to stop Asian hate and discuss what can be done to further prevent it. Jillian has been writing about racism for nearly a decade now. After graduating in 2014, she was creating a list of job applications when she saw on the news that Darren Wilson, the former police officer who shot and killed 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, 
would not be charged with a crime. At the bottom of her list, she wrote, I wish the little black boy did something wrong. Later, it would become a poem. Here's a stanza from that poem to respect Jillian during this time of grief. I will read that stanza. Because it's easier to explain why he's laying dead in the street. Bullet wounds still steaming from the lead and the heat. Than to say no to justice. No peace. No R.I.P. The little black boy did nothing wrong. It's easier to explain what's wrong and what's right. What's black and what's white. The end of the stanza. Now Jillian carries on, eight years after that poem was written. While she's performed 300 times, she struggles to name the victims, the matriarchs who were gunned down at tops. Here's unanswered questions as it's currently written now. How do you find a place to hold a pain that's larger than your body? Not knowing your heart could be bent that way, be broken into a million shards of brass. How can you handle not knowing that your heart was made of brass? How do you piece it back together when you never knew what it looked like? You never saw a picture on the box. No one saw it coming, the pain, but it came like a thief in the night. How do you reign in the anger? The violation, the crime scene that will always be a crime scene, the hurt that will never be resolved or restored. How do we sleep knowing that hate found a home in our city, in our sacred place? When do we stop hiding behind slogans and saying mass-centric racism with perfume, pretending it doesn't stink? How can we heal that way? Where do we go from here? When do we get real about the tale of two cities? Can we be honest? We were given a small slice of the pie and we were told to survive, but even that has been taken from us, only leaving us with each other. We look to one another for light, for an assuring look or validating fear, for hope that things will change, that we will break free from the perpetual state of survival, fear of the red and blue lights, the grocery store, the church, the school, the playground. When does it end? When do we stop fighting a battle that wasn't ours to begin with? We know we have power, but we long to feel the freedom of no longer carrying the weight of hate, a hate that never belonged to us, a hate that should never be welcomed or fed, but even that hate gets to feast while we travel through a food desert with our hands on ten and two, and no our hearts are tired, our feet will not grow weary. We will organize and strategize, fighting for change until our very last breath, following the lead of the elders who have known for quite some time that change will never come, but it is there for the taking. We will take it. We will own what we sacrifice for generations. We will walk through life without the bitterness of hate. We will plant seeds of comments and expectations, watering them until they are too large for even us. We will find a place to hold a resolve that's larger than our bodies, that runs deeper than any grave holding our ancestors. We will be honest about Buffalo, and we will let that honesty guide us to a place that we so long to be, to freedom. This is Asia Backham for WPFW. Radio. There is still time to support this program by calling 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739. Go online, wpfwfm.org, 
or use Cash App, dollar sign WPFW. Uh, thank you to Richard from Annapolis, Maryland, for your generous contribution. Thank you again to Earl from Silver Spring, Anonymous from Alexandria, Virginia, and Anonymous from Washington, D.C. We still have some money left to raise this hour, and I know we can go over the top. We just need your support to push us over. Uh, again, we're offering gifts this hour. Uh, Voices Who Changed the World flash drive from the Pacifica Radio Archives featuring over 1,300 uh, 1, hours of some of the best uh, exclusive reporting from Pacifica going back to 1949 uh, for uh, just a monthly contribution of 1667. Again, the number to call, 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739, online, WPFWFM, or using Cash App, dollar sign WPFW. This station and this program need your support to stay on the air. Um, we, we've been through so much together over these last four years, and this station has been with you over so much over the last 46 years. We cannot stay on the air without your support. This is a community institution, and like any other community institution, it requires mutual support. We've been with you through through the crazy presidency of Donald Trump and the kind of crazy first year of this of this Biden administration. We want to stay through this with you, but we need your support. 202-588-9739-1-800-222-9739, WPFWFM.org or Cash App, dollar sign WPFW. That's our show for today. Thank you to our engineer, Mike, N- Mike Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. And yes, I too am asking you to please call and support the work of this WPFW news team that I am so proud to be a part of. I am looking at two young journalists who are some of the finest that I've met in my career. I really am serious about that. And I am so proud to be working with them. So please support the work. Support the ongoing work of WPFW News, Monday Morning QB. The number is 202-588-9739, 202-588-9739. One more time, 202-588-9739. And thank you. Thank you.